Today's passage is Psalm 124. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side when people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive when their anger was kindled against us. Then the flood would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us. Then over us would have gone the raging waters. Blessed be the Lord who has not given us as prey to their teeth. We have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. A snare, the snare is broken and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord who has made heaven and earth. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would instruct us from it now. Open our eyes to behold wondrous things so that we might see Jesus more clearly and know how we ought to follow him. Fill our hearts with joy because of the song that you have included in your word. And may it be a song for our everyday. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. We're continuing on in our journey through the Psalms of Ascent. These, uh, as you may recall, are psalms that uh, were used to prepare the hearts of worshipers on their way to Jerusalem. And we come this morning to the 124th Psalm. I, I love this psalm. I feel especially blessed to get to preach it because it is one of my favorites. This psalm was the first psalm that I ever learned to sing. Um, we don't sing psalms much anymore, but it's been very helpful. It was the first one I ever learned to sing. It's one of the first that we ever taught our children to sing. Uh, if you have never sung a psalm, I would encourage you to do it. Uh, it can be a little strange, uh, but it's a great way to memorize God's word and to hide it in your heart. The psalms are music. They are the hymn book of the Bible. They were Jesus' hymn book. And as music, they are very powerful. Music has a shaping effect on all of our lives. Music shapes people and cultures. When you go to the dentist, why do they give you headphones with music? Because it's a lot better sounding than the drilling they're going to do on your teeth. They want your experience to be different than the sound of the buzz working in your mouth. That's why advertisers put their commercials to music. I'm going to give you an example. I bet you can tell me what comes next. If I said, give me a break, give me a break, break me off a piece of that. Thank you. That's right. You know that because you can sing it, because it has been sung to you countless times. This is true of the Bible also. In 1582, a Scottish minister named John Dury was imprisoned in Edinburgh. And when he was released from the prison, about 200 of his friends and parishioners met him to escort him back into town. And as they walked, the number of people swelled from 200 to about 2,000. And someone in the crowd started singing this psalm. The psalm and the tune were very well known, and soon the entire crowd of 2,000 people were singing it together. And it moved not just the crowd, but the whole city. 
And it was told that afterward, after hearing the massive congregation singing of the Lord protecting his people, not giving them as prey to the teeth of evil men, that one of Dury's primary persecutors got up and fled the town, quote, more alarmed at the sight and song than at anything he had seen in Scotland. If you're familiar with Braveheart, the story of William Wallace, uh, this sight was more terrifying than that one. That army was lined up in one way. This army came through singing the Lord's songs. That is a more terrifying sight. And that's what this man experienced. Music is powerful. The music of God's word is unstoppable. It builds up his people and causes his enemies to tremble. And I pray that God will build us up with this song this morning. This is a psalm of sovereign grace. It's designed to strengthen our weak knees, and to put steel in our spines. If you were on a journey and you needed a song to put some pep back into your step, this would be a song to do it. And the lesson that I believe God has for us in this psalm is that his name is our sure defense. God's name is your sure defense. Now why, you might ask. Why is his name our defense? Why not his arm? Why not his sword, strength, something? Why the name? And we'll start with the obvious. In verse 8, it says it. It says, our help is in the name of the Lord. But why is that? To understand this, we actually need to begin somewhere else. We need to talk about God's name. In 1995... Joan Osborne released a song called One of Us. Some of you probably know it. And it starts off, If God had a name, what would it be? And would you call it to his face if you were faced with him in all his glory? Well, as it turns out, God does have a name. In fact, he has many names in the Bible. If I asked you, you could probably uh, tell me a bunch of them and we could make a nice long list together. But there's one in particular that we need to focus on. In Genesis 1, we are introduced to the creator of heaven and earth. He is called God, or in the Hebrew, Elohim. Throughout Genesis 1, whenever it says God, it's, the Hebrew is Elohim. Uh, and when something happens, it's always credited to Elohim. But then we get to Genesis 2. All of Elohim's creative work is done, and we get something interesting. We get the first genealogy in the Bible. It's in Genesis 2.4. What is a genealogy? A genealogy is a study of families. It's a, uh, a family history. And whoever is at the top of the genealogy is where the family comes from. It's where the family gets its name. So my last name is Rubinson. I am a son of Reuben, uh, which is not a reference to the tribe of Reuben, though that would be very cool. Uh, it is a reference to some other Reuben. I don't know who. Okay, uh, But nonetheless, my genealogy stems from a man named Reuben who has given my whole family its name. This Reuben is responsible for generations of people. Now interestingly, the name Genesis comes from the Hebrew word for generations. Genesis is the book of generations. There are 11 genealogies in the book. And again, we get that first one in Genesis chapter 2, which says... These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God 
made the earth and heavens. So, all through Genesis 1, we read about Elohim. He is the creator. It's his spirit that's hovering over the face of the water. Elohim said, let there be light. Elohim is the one who separates day and night, who names day and night. Elohim is how we are to know the creator of the universe. But even pagan nations of the past and today, they know of a god, or they have belief in gods. They have ideas of a creative supreme being. So what distinguishes some random God from the God of the Bible? Well, the answer is a name. In Genesis 2-4, we are introduced not simply to Elohim. It says the Lord God. The Hebrew is Yahweh Elohim. There's a lot we could say about that name. But what's important for you to know is that Elohim is kind of the creator name of God. Yahweh is the covenant name of God. That is the name that he gave to his people to show that they were in a special relationship. They could call him a name that the other nations didn't know. Lots of nations worshipped a God, but it was the creator God who shared his name with Israel. In Exodus, Moses asked God, who shall I tell them sent me? And Elohim says in Exodus 3, tell them Yahweh sent you. When you read the Old Testament and you read the word Lord, if it's capital L-O-R-D, the Hebrew there is Yahweh. So in Genesis 2, the covenant name of God is at the head of the genealogy of heaven and earth. Seems kind of a strange genealogy. We're used to seeing genealogies of names, but this is a genealogy of heaven and earth, and God stands at the top of that. Where do heaven and earth come from? Well, they come from Elohim, but they are in a special relationship with him also. They are in a special relationship with Yahweh Elohim. They come from God, and they are bound to him by covenant. Yahweh is the head of the genealogy. He is over heaven and earth, and also what continues from there right down the genealogical line. So God produced heaven and earth, and then earth produced man. If you remember, the Bible says Adam is made from the dust of the earth. So what we see here is that the Lord, Yahweh God, is in covenant with heaven and earth and what is produced from the earth, namely people. God is the covenant God over heaven, over earth, and over the people of the earth. He was in covenant with them even before the fall. Now we jump back to our psalm and we see why this is such a big deal. Psalm 124 uses that word Lord four times. Each time is Yahweh. So verse 1, if it had not been Yahweh, our covenant God, if it had not been Yahweh who was on our side, verse 2, he repeats it. If it had not been Yahweh who was on our side. Verse 6, blessed be Yahweh. Verse 8, our help is in the name of Yahweh who made heaven and earth. Again, this harkens back to Genesis 2. God's covenant name sits at the head of the genealogy of heaven and earth. They serve him. They come from him. And what we see in this psalm is that no force on earth, metaphorical or otherwise, no force can uh, take, can hold, can have the Lord's people. In the psalm, we see that no beast, no fire, no flood, no, uh, no fowler, no trapper, all of them are obligated to obey Yahweh. 
And because he is the head of this covenant genealogy and we are under him, Psalm tells us our help, our security comes from him. It stems from his very name. So we're going to briefly walk through the text and then we're going to draw out a few points from it. Verse 1 starts in a strange way. It starts with kind of this fragment and then it breaks and then it returns to the fragment in verse 2. If it had not been Yahweh who was on our side, break. Oh, let Israel now say, this is a uh, kind of a, uh, a call to the people to repeat. Um, you can think of it kind of like a liturgy. After the confession on most Sundays when I say, amen, you all instinctively know to go, amen, right? So uh, this is the, the, the writer in a sense uh, saying, if it had not been Yahweh who was on our side, oh, wait a minute. You all know this story. You know the words. Sing along. Do it with me. And so then he starts again in verse 2. He picks up the fragment and he finishes it. If it had not been Yahweh who was on our side when the people rose up against us. So Yahweh, their covenant God, was on their side when people, other people, rose in opposition to them. So what you've got is God and his people on one side and an opposing force on the other side. Already the odds should be laughable, right? God's involved. Who's going to oppose him? He's the Lord of heaven and earth. But nonetheless, it is important for Israel to remember that Yahweh was bound to them by covenant, lest they get prideful. He was bound to them because he chose to be and for no other reason. Israel was not great or smart or powerful or pretty. It was none of that. God was on their side simply because he chose to be. He made a covenant, which is why David, the writer of the psalm, can say, Think, think if God didn't join into covenant with us. What would have happened when the people rose up against us? Verse 3 would have happened. Then they would have swallowed us up alive. This opposing force he compares to a ravenous beast, a starving animal. And this little group of people couldn't even begin to put up a fight. They were so poor and helpless that they would have been swallowed up in a single bite, eaten alive. They'd have swallowed us up alive when their anger was kindled against us. These people who were not on their side were comparable both to a starving beast and their anger was like kindling a fire. Something that would burn them down and reduce them to ashes. They're helpless. David doesn't stop there. He goes on in verse 4 to give another picture. If Yahweh weren't on our side when people rose against us, then the flood would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us. Then over us would have gone the raging waters, says verse 5. Their enemies would have been to them like a beast, like a fire, like a flood, a flood that just sweeps them away. This flood language reminds us of a couple other instances of floods in the Bible. In Genesis 7, there is the flood on the earth that consumes the whole earth. It swept everything away. In Exodus, when the Egyptians tried to cross the Red Sea, the waters collapsed on them and swept them away. That's what floods do. If you've uh, ever watched videos on YouTube or the news, you've seen pictures of floods, videos of floods. They are terrifying because they bulldoze houses and people and cars and they change landscapes. They are a terrible and awesome display of power. 
If Yahweh had not been on our side, the people would have consumed us like a flood. We would have been just another rock on the bottom of the water, raising its banks just a tad bit higher. But who controls the floods? Again, who's the head of heaven and earth? It's Yahweh. Genesis 7 was his flood. Exodus was his flood. Verse 6, blessed be Yahweh who has not given us as prey to their teeth. They could have swallowed us up alive, but Yahweh wouldn't allow it. He has not given us to their teeth. Verse 7, we have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. A fowler is uh, a bird trapper, and a snare is a trap. So the image is not that they were uh, like birds, and God showed them, oh, hey, there's a trap down there, better watch out. No, the image is that they were caught. They were ready to be consumed by the ravenous beasts and burned by the fiery anger, drowned in the raging waters. They were in the trap. Metaphorically, they were, uh, they were lost in the jungle with the tigers all around. They were stuck in the middle of the brush fire. They were down in the valley when the river broke through the dam. But God did not give them to those things. They have escaped like a bird from a hunter's trap. The snare is broken, it says, and we have escaped. So they were snared. They were trapped. But what did God do? He broke the snare. He shattered the trap, and they, we, escaped. Why did God do this? Verse 8, our help is in the name of Yahweh who made heaven and earth. God made a covenant with his people. His name is the name they were to call on. And the Bible says when they did, God remembered his covenant. Now what I want to do is focus on three words in this psalm. We're going to look at the words given in verse 6, broken in verse 7, and name in verse 8. In verse 8 it says, Blessed be Yahweh who has not given us as prey to their teeth. I said earlier, this is a psalm of sovereign grace. And what I mean by that is Yahweh has the authority to do with his creation as he wishes. He is the head, remember? He is the head of the genealogy of earth and heaven. They must obey him. God has the authority to give his creatures to whatever he wants. We have a tendency to read things like this and say, oh, well, God stepped in to protect us. He didn't allow us to fall into the open mouth of the beast. But again, that's not the image that we get in verse 7. Because verse 7 says we were already trapped. We were like birds caught in the snare. But God didn't want the fowlers to have us. And so what did he do? He broke the trap. God has the authority to give us to the fowlers to give us to the beast, to give us to these earthly terrors of fire and flood. He could make us their prey. He could make us their kindling. He could make us the pebbles to just be washed away. But God doesn't give us to that. We get uncomfortable with the idea of God having this kind of authority. After all, if you have the authority to give something to somebody, it implies ownership. And it is unpleasant to us that think, to think that somebody could own us. But we are people who have been purchased by Christ. And so I would ask you, who owns you? 
We don't like to talk this way because we think it's inherently wicked. But God owns the whole world. Romans says, has the clay any right to talk back to the potter? Of course not. If God owns everything, that means he owns us. And the question is, what does God do with his ownership? Is he a tyrant? No. No. We saw a few months ago while we were in Galatians that God uses his ownership of us not like a cruel dictator, but as a training ground to grow us up so that we can be ready to inherit all that he has. God's plan was to set us under authority until the time comes when we are ready to assume authority. Think of it like a wedding. When a bride is given away to a groom, we don't scoff at the dad for giving her away. Now, often we are moved to tears to see this dad who loves his little girl and believes that the best thing for her is to let her go, to go from under his authority to the authority of the groom, to no longer be the daughter, but to become the bride. The father wants his daughter to receive all the blessings, all the blessings that this groom can provide as a new covenant head. God is a father who wants his children to grow so that they will be ready to receive all the blessings that await them. And a wedding is really the perfect image. Because while, while we have God not giving his children to the beasts and the floods and the fires and such, does God give his children to something? And the answer is yes. God does give his children away. In John 6, 37, we find out where. Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. God is a father. And what does he do with his daughter? He gives her to the perfect man. The man who says, I will never cast her out. The man who confers all of his benefits onto her. The man who says, I will die for her. God has the authority to give us to whatever he wants. And even when we were walking in open rebellion to him, he refused to give us as prey. He refused to let us stay in our traps. Instead, he gave us to his beloved son so that we could never be lost. When we could have been swallowed up in a single bite, God watched over us. He would not give you away. He awaited the perfect time so that he could give you to his beloved son. And if God has given you to the son, you can read this psalm completely differently. Notice the psalm starts with an if-then statement. If the Lord had not been on our side, then they would have swallowed us up alive. But there are no ifs with God. If you are in Christ, then there is no chance of him not being on your side. The second word we're going to look at is in verse 7. It's the word broken. We have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken. 
and we have escaped. There are countless things in this world that could ensnare you. Everything promises you paradise, but none of it can deliver. Oh, get this loan. Get this credit card. Let me trap you with interest. You can have all you want now. You'll just pay for it forever. The promise of money or pleasure, fame, food. There are traps everywhere. They are calling out to you. You know the things that call out to you. They all want to consume you. What's interesting is they invite you by saying, you can consume me. You can have me. But what they're actually trying to do is to consume you. But God will not let them have you. What happens when we step into a trap? When a snare like a giant bear trap clamps down on you and refuses to let you go? God breaks the trap and he sets you free. Israel in Egypt was in a trap and God set them free and he broke Egypt. You all have probably been trapped by various lusts and passions at times in your life. Maybe some of you are experiencing that now. You can probably look back on something and see how God led you out of some trap or other. We often think of this just as growing up. Like, oh, those childish sins, you know. It was just immaturity, and I've grown up since then. I'm going to tell you, don't do that. Don't think that kind of way. I have known senior citizens that struggle with the same problems, same sins as 16-year-old boys. It's not just a I've grown up type of thing. If you don't struggle with a sin now that you used to struggle with, don't take credit for it. Don't take credit for having grown up, becoming more mature. Instead, give God the credit. Because it is God who has not given you to that sin. A a really easy example of this, um, I don't mean to uh, necessarily call it out specifically, but it's just uh, the effects manifest physically, so it's easy to see. Drugs are the easiest example, I think. If you look at somebody who started some hard drug, And you look at them then a a year or two after they've been on it, they look very different. That trap has done things to them. They've often lost a lot of weight. Their teeth are ruined. Uh, Sometimes they have a hard time walking. Uh, If you're not familiar, there's something that's called the heroin hunch. And it's really sad to see people who are experiencing it. Uh, they, They hunch like this, sometimes all the way to the ground. Because their limbs begin to feel very heavy. Their balance gets messed up. That's what a trap does. It consumes you. If you imagine living uh, inside a cage or a bear trap or something, imagine what that would be like. You'd just waste away. You'd become a shell of what you were. This is how sin works. This is what happened. uh, If you've seen or, or read The Lord of the Rings, this is what happened to Gollum. The ring was a trap that had its full effect on him. It turned him from a person into a murderous creature, not even recognizable as a person. That's what happens when you're given to the trappers, to the fowlers. And this is what God would not allow. He poured out grace on you even before you knew him. I became a Christian at 18. God was pouring out grace on me, protecting me from the traps even before I knew him. When God gave you to Jesus Christ... He did what husbands are meant to do. He defended you. He defended his wife. He fought for her and he died for her. 
you remember the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, um, if you haven't read it, you, you should. Uh, in, in the book, uh, Edmund uh, betrayed his family. He betrayed Aslan. In truth, he betrayed all of Narnia. And yet what happened? When he was about to be executed, the White Witch had him chained up. He was in her trap. She was going to kill him. And before she could lay a hand on him, Aslan's soldiers showed up to set him free, to break the snare. But Edmund wasn't off the hook. He was still guilty of his betrayal. And the White Witch came for him. She went to Aslan's camp and faced him and said, You have a traitor there, Aslan. Well, said Aslan, his offense was not against you. And after a brief exchange about the law and the deep magic of Narnia, she says, You know that every traitor belongs to me as my lawful prey, and that for every treachery I have a right to a kill. And so the witch concluded, That human creature is mine, his life is forfeit to me, his blood is my property. If you know the story, you know that Aslan knew she was right. She did have the right to a kill, but she was wrong in the deal she made. She traded Aslan for Edmund. She thought that by trading Edmund for Aslan, her trap would be unstoppable. She could ensnare all of Narnia forever if Aslan was out of the way. What she didn't understand was that though she had a right to a kill, she only had a right to a kill that deserved to die, which of course Aslan did not. And so, when she killed Aslan, the stone table where she killed him, uh, the law which she claimed gave her the right to blood, it broke. It was shattered. And she lost all authority. She had no more claim, and her cause was doomed. The Lord Jesus was given a bride, and she was guilty. She was a faithless bride, much like the woman at the well. She had five husbands, and the one she was with then was not her husband. We are a guilty people, and yet the Lord did not give us to the trappers, to the beasts, to the floods, or the fires. He gave us to Jesus, and it was Jesus who substituted himself for us. He was crucified, condemned for us. The devil took Jesus thinking it would gain him the world. What he didn't realize is he did not have the authority to take Jesus. So when Christ made the payment in blood, there was no reversing it. And the devil was left empty-handed, and death itself had to spit Jesus back out. Not only has God broken specific snares throughout your life, he has broken the snare. He has broken sin itself. The law has been defanged, and death has died. And you are set free. Your snares are all broken. If you follow Jesus, it is because God gave you to Jesus who has broken the snare of death and who is breaking every cord and chain which binds you so that you can live free like him. The snare is broken and we have escaped. In Isaiah 40, it says, Those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up on wings like eagles. You have escaped like a bird. Set free to traverse the heavens. And you might ask, okay, so Jesus set me free from sin and death. I feel that. What about my lusts? What about my constant dissatisfaction? 
What about my anger, my envy? Jesus will break those traps too. Faith in Jesus' defeat of death saves you from the sting of death. Why do we think that it won't save us from the chains that try to pull us back down into it? He's promised you. He will not lose you. He will save you. Trust him. Follow him. He is a faithful husband who will fight for his bride. He will not lose anyone that's been given to him. Lastly, let's consider the word name in verse 8. Our help is in the name of Yahweh. If you suddenly received a bill that said you owe $10 billion, that would be a very terrifying thing. But if your last name was Musk or Bezos, you could breathe and say, my help is in my name. God has a name. It is a covenant name, the name by which he swore to his people. And when God gave you to his son, he put his name on you. You bear his name. This is why a wife takes the groom's last name, because God's people, the bride, were given his name. Did you know that when you came to Jesus, you were renamed? I hope somebody explained that to you. You actually uh, probably went through a naming ceremony when you received the sign of baptism. And you were symbolically cleansed. You were baptized into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus commanded his disciples to do. To make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. When Jesus said that, it was a new Moses moment. Remember, Moses asked God, who shall I say sent me? And God said, tell them Yahweh sent you. Well, now you have Jesus speaking to the people, telling them to go and proclaim a new name. It's not wrong to call God Yahweh. That's how he revealed himself. But he has since revealed himself more fully, and he has told us a truer name. He has, uh, in a sense, given us his Christian name. And the name is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That is the name that is on you, Christian. The fact that you are called Christian testifies to this. You are a Christ one. You follow Christ who brought you into the divine relationship. You are called by the name of God himself. I say that you are brought into the divine relationship. That's because you are united to Christ. You are united to Christ like a wife to her husband. Like the body is to a head. God's name is on you. And your help is in that name. When you doubt, what ought you to say to yourself? What news should you remind yourself with? It's that you've been given a new name. You've been brought into the family of God. God's name is on you. The Father is jealous for his children. The Son is jealous for his bride. The Spirit is jealous for his temple. That's you. You are the children. You are the bride. You are the temple. So fear not. When you find yourself in trials or snares, the name of God is on you. The name of the Father, Son, and Spirit are jealous for you. When you're being tempted toward a trap, you see some shiny snare that you want to go and follow. You have this opportunity to pursue your baser passions. What truth should cling to you in order to help you fight back against that temptation? It is the same. God's name is on you. He will not let you walk in that way. 
That temptation that is calling out to you, it is a dead end. Emphasis on the dead part. Don't go there. If you try, it will be painful. Because if you are his, he will bring you back. At whatever cost, he has already paid with blood. His spirit is in you. And he will not turn his back on you. When you find yourself down that dead end road, and you realize you've made some huge mistake, what should you think about? Well, it's the same thing. God has put his name on you. He will not abandon you. If you've gone down the way of the tomb, you can think, praise be to God, because I know the God who leads people back out, out, of, back out of the tomb. He's faithful. He's not going to let you, his children, uh, his spirit that is in you see corruption. If you find yourself in the tomb, he brings you back out. This is, of course, our ultimate hope that we know will happen at the end. This psalm is a psalm for the Christian. Whether you're clinging to it after a battle that feels like a loss, or whether you're clinging to it as you head into a battle, God's name is on you. His name is your help. He will provide everything that you need. He has delivered you from the snares, and he always will. This psalm was sung by pilgrims on their way to Jerusalem. Well, church, we are Christian pilgrims on our way toward the new Jerusalem. We have faced our fair share of snares together. We have gone through what have felt like floods and fires and beasts, and the Lord has brought us through. And it's hard to know but it's true to say that there will be more. In Exodus 34, God renewed his covenant with his people, and he said this. Notice the language. It says, Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Take care, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their asherim. For you shall worship no other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous god. The Lord told his people that his name is Jealous. Did you know that's a name of God? His name is Jealous. And being Jealous... His plans for you, the plans he insists on for you, the plans he paid in blood for you are far greater than any snare of the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, or Jebusites. There is nothing, no snare is sufficient for God's kids. His plan for you will not fall short of glory. Instead, your role, my role, the role of the church is to do what he says there in Exodus, to tear down the altars, to break the pillars, to cut down the asherim. We are to worship God alone. Uh, that means that fights are inevitable. They will happen. We are to show the world essentially how bankrupt all other worship systems are, and that's going to produce fights. And we don't get to fight with the weapons that Old Testament Israel got to use. We don't have swords and spears. We fight the way Jesus did. We give ourselves. We die to show the world the power of God who raises the dead. 
We worship God fearlessly and we trust that he will not let us be consumed. That is the harder path. And on it we will be inclined to doubt and that is why we need this psalm. God has done everything necessary to prove to us that he will not fail. He has not given us as prey, but he has given us to his son who fought through death for us, who has broken the snare of death and will break every remaining snare. And he has put his holy name on us. Our help is in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who made heaven and earth and in whom you were sealed forever. Let's pray. Our Father and Almighty God, thank you for this truth. You have put your name on us and our help is in your name. Thank you for giving us only to the Lord Jesus, for not giving us to all of the snares and traps that we found ourselves in. Thank you for placing your great name on us, for putting your spirit within us. We are unworthy. And so we give praise to you for such grace. And we do so in the great name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.